This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Uh, interesting day for equity markets. Let me just talk you through the price action that we have seen. Uh, European stocks broadly up very strongly today. The CAC 40 and the DAX both up over 2%. The FTSE 100, a little bit of a laggard today. The reason for that, energy prices, commodity prices down, which meant that energy stocks were lower. Um, lots of 52-week highs, a lot of great momentum, but is it a short squeeze? That's the big question. Uh, the S&P is up by 1.22% stateside. Alex, this despite actually some data... I thought today that maybe suggested that we should listen to the Fed. Yeah, we wound up having uh, the JOLTS data, the number coming in, 10.4 million job openings. So even if you have to discount some of that, it, it does point to a very, very, very tight labor market. And even in the ISM data, new orders falling, prices falling, um, you have the overall index falling, but the employment picture is still staying really high, still over that 50-point. Yep. Anil Kashkari saying, get to 5.4% and let's stay there for a while, guys. Markets do not care. It's amazing. Kashkari used to be such a such a dove. Right now, really quite hawkish. Five point four percent, and then stay there. Amazing to hear hear or him seeing him writing that. Um, it'll be interesting to see kind of where others are post this data. We're going to get the minutes a little bit later on. We'll deal with the details uh, as we uh, work our way towards that release a little bit later uh, with Mike McKee. First of all, though, let's get some headlines before we get into all of these big stories. Let's do that uh, with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much. And here's what's going on, Guy Johnson. One of the UK's biggest unions is accusing the government of waiting until after this week's crippling rail strikes before resuming talks over pay and working conditions. Mike Lynch, the RMT's general secretary, says negotiations with the Department for Transport, Network Rail and Train Companies will resume on Monday, January 9th. Natural gas prices in Europe have fallen back to pre-war levels as a bout of mild weather reduces demand and eases fears of a prolonged supply crunch. Benchmark futures fell as much as 11% as warm uh, spells curb heating demand and blustery conditions cut the use of gas in power generation. Tesco has extended a pledge to keep prices as low as Britain's biggest grocer battles to fend off competition from German discounters Aldi and Lidl. Tesco is freezing prices on more than 1,000 products until April 10th, including everyday items like tea bags and baked beans. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Critical items, critical items. You can't mess with tea bags and baked beans, Charlie. Pell. I, I could not disagree with you more. When I was in the UK doing my narrow boat, seven out of seven days, I managed to have baked beans on toast for breakfast. Love Great it. Taste. Cup of tea, baked what? beans, exactly, Fantastic. without a doubt. Baked you don't beans want to share toast. a cabin with Charlie, but those are good things <laughs> that are going to happen. That sounds awful. Um, it's gross. I quite like. I, the big, I'm a big fan of baked beans. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Yep. With the hot dog for dinner, but not for breakfast. No, the breakfast is oatmeal breakfast. and honey. Oh, full yep. English, full English breakfast yep. with baked beans yep. is and, a critical and, part of the. And, uh, and it was pretty funny because a couple of weeks ago, when I was flying through London Heathrow to go on to uh, Brussels, managed to get into one of the swanky lounges. Why they let me in, I don't know, but managed to have <laughs> baked beans on toast there as well. So uh, I got very lucky. <laughs> Traveling yep. with Charlie. Traveling with that Charlie. That needs to be a TV show. Yeah. But go ahead. <laughs> Let's not do that. 
Um, Charlie, great stuff. Charlie will be back in half an hour. He's going to continue to keep us updated on all things that are important, including the price of baked beans. Um, talking of inflation, Alex, the Prime Minister delivered a speech in the East End of London today, Rishi Sunak, basically laying out five promises that he wants the British public to look at and then assess him on as we work our way towards uh, the next general election. Five promises. These were those promises. Five promises. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists and stop the boats. Those are the people's priorities. They are your government's priorities and we will either have achieved them or not. No tricks, no ambiguity. So the leader of the opposition is going to deliver a speech tomorrow. Did we just see? the start of the general election campaign. Marcus Ashworth is going to join us uh, for the rest of the hour. I've got to bow out because of the uh, the strikes, as we know. I think tomorrow is going to be a particularly bad day. Marcus, is that what just happened? Was this the start of the general election cycle? Uh, well, I don't think so, because if that's all, all that Sonak's got to offer, um, I mean, a lot of these things are going to happen regardless of whatever the government does. I mean, they, you can make laws on stopping boats. doesn't mean boats are going to stop. Inflation is going to halve anyway. Uh, interesting bit was on growth. Again, I'm almost certain they could do nothing about it. I think you may mean that growth may start to recover um, by the towards the end of the year. I, I would be surprised they genuinely think that there will be a positive uh, overall print for, for uh, 2023. It's possible, but it's a very brave call. So I, I don't think this is going to worry uh, Starmer. We'll, we'll hear him tomorrow, unfortunately. I don't think there's uh, that much about it. But at least it's simple, it's clear. People know things have calmed down since the excitement of uh, the summer. But not if you're on strike. Um, and, and we'll get to the, the strike more specifically in the second segment. But what did you think that you made of the fact that he just kind of ignored it? Because that's what the government's doing. It's the only strategy. And they are finally have learned their lesson. But actual fact, strike as much as you want to. It's starting to hurt the unions. It's starting to hurt the, the workers, perhaps more than the government. The government has no way out of this one. If it gives into one on one thing, it has to give them the whole lot, and the whole what little credibility there may be left would be will completely gone. So this is a unfortunately they've got to dig in, and that's what they're doing. And the one thing I'm I think they actually got right. How do you think Starmer responds then? Government doesn't want to talk about strikes. Wants to sit back, wait and see how this one plays out. Is this has Sunak has the government opened a door for the Labour Party? Is there an opportunity here for Labour? <laughs> <laughs> they open the doors, the windows, they take the roof off. Um, no, I don't think Starmer's going to worry about uh, what, any of this. He'll, he'll battle all the way back. It's it's easy pickings for him at the moment. The question for him is at some point he's going to have to have some policies which differentiate. But, you know, look, he's playing this very smart. You've got some very, very good advisors, world-class, I would say, actually. Um, and how the strategy so far, he hasn't barely had a lift of the finger. And it's all, you know, the government has tripped up over itself everywhere he goes. There will come a point, but he knows not to do it two years out or, or, or certainly best part of two years out. He'll be waiting until the summer of next year before he really puts uh, too much meat on the bone. One or two mm-hmm. sort of little things he'll try. That's, and that will be that. So if if you have Richie Sunak saying, here are my priorities, and a lot of it's going to be actually delivered just by the nature of economics and inflation, what what is something that the government actually has to work on to get there? Well, very much the NHS, I would say that would be the key thing they had to do. You know, he's promising quite a lot there uh, and could very easily that could go badly wrong. Nonetheless, we're probably through, not say the worst of the winter, but, you know, in the sense of we know how bad it's going to get. Um, 
and in some senses, you know, things may look better just by by the, the, the sheer nature of, of of going into the into the spring or what have you. So, um, you know, they've got hopefully to get some traction. Some of the reforms they're putting through. Um, I think a lot of people realise it's not just all about money for the NHS. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be genuinely uh, sorted out and reformed, and there's a possibility they might get some some action on that. But I mean, really, that that's probably the biggest task. I, I'll say the three things that affect uh, the, the the government's ratings at the moment: it's tax, and I eat too much of it. It's immigration because it's become a big issue because they simply cannot get control of something they promised on. Whether or not they should or not is a different thing. They promised to do something and they singly failed. And then, of course, it's as always, it's the NHS. And I think that's that's clearly something that they have to show some progress somewhere uh, on at least getting some of the, perhaps the waiting list or, or other things improving. Um, I'm going to buy, bow out now. I've got a train to catch. Uh, I hit tomorrow is going to be the really bad day. I think Excellent. Yeah, exactly. Um, Aslef is going on strike tomorrow, so that's the train drivers, uh, which is going to make life really difficult. Uh, Marcus, my thanks to you for uh, for for being with us throughout the whole hour. I feel incredibly just a half guilty, hour, unless you want to talk about oh, Salesforce yeah. oh, yeah, and release him half in twenty hour. minutes. Yes, this is very true. Uh, anyway, thanks to you both. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and get my train. Um, strikes continue. That is the story. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. We hugely value public sector workers like nurses. They do incredibly important work. And that's why we want a reasonable dialogue with the unions about what's responsible and fair for our country. And in the coming days, we will update you on the government's next steps. Everyone awaiting the government's next steps. That was Rishi Sunak uh, speaking today as he laid out his economic plan, also talking uh, about the strikes. Uh, to continue that conversation, um, one of the UK's biggest unions has now accused the government of waiting until after this week's crippling rail strikes before resuming talks over pay and working conditions. Um, this is Mick Lynch. He's the RMT's general secretary, saying negotiations with the Department for Transport and Train Companies and Network Rail would resume on Monday, January 9th. Um, Marcus, I know you. So we were talking earlier to Paul Donovan at UBS. He was saying that wages are a huge issue in general, that like real wages are deeply, deeply negative. And the two solutions are hiking everybody's pay, whether or not we're talking about unions or not, or waiting for inflation to come down quickly so then you can actually have some real money to spend. Um, you're, you think it's going to be the latter, yeah. Well, I think that there's there's going to be some progress on inflation. It, it's, just to say, Sonic's right. And he. I don't think he's stupid enough not to, to promise something which he couldn't deliver without, you know, his eyes closed. I.e., inflation, as Hugh Pill, the chief economist, has said, is expected to, barring you know, situation changing dramatically with Russia's energy supplies, um, will certainly halve by the by the back end of this year. I think it will go lower than that, um, but I'm a bit more aggressive on I think how the basis effect is going to work. But certainly for April, we should start to see. We're seeing it already in Europe. We've definitely seen it for several months now in the states. Um, you know, the UK will be a little bit slower because the way we 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 we've timed the bungs, should we say, the the bribes and subsidies that have been uh, keeping all of European inflation much lower than it otherwise would be. I mean, UK included, mm-hmm. we're probably about 14, 15 percent, if not. Um, yeah. So you know, that's that's all well and good. But as far as you know, the the, the union's concerned and, and and the strikes, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, like we're paying for this. It's the taxpayers' money going on public sector unions of which have a very healthy, amazingly generous 
pension and benefit scheme okay. and job security. So there, okay, is, well, there is a balance to this. Hold that thought because uh, Eamon Farhat, who wrote that article, is joining us now um, from Bloomberg. Okay, so Eamon, that's the other side. Like, we're paying for it. You have other benefits. You should be happy with that benefit, too. What would the strikers say, Eamon? I mean, the strikers would probably say that, you know, like everyone right now in, in the UK, the cost of living crisis is really affecting them. And many of them haven't seen a pay rise for a while. Or well, the pay rise that they are getting, like the NHS, it's only about 4%. So they may be seeing people in the private sector and thinking, you know, we deserve that kind of pay rise. And many people we are hearing might actually be considering leaving their jobs. I think it was like junior doctors, something like 20% are thinking of leaving their jobs or going into other roles outside of the NHS. So the issue is we have a staffing shortage in the NHS. People are leaving for many reasons, and one of them is pay. Marcus, well, your response. The, I mean, so, I mean, so obviously that goes without saying, but the question is whether it can be afforded by the rest of the country. And if you analyse average private sector versus average public sector pay, there's no doubt about it. The public sector is significantly better rewarded than the private sector, which is quite an extraordinary thing if you think about it. And this happened, uh, you know, over the last uh, best part of the last decade. That doesn't mean that people shouldn't have a, a decent pay rise. And I think the government needs to to move maneuver on this and probably will have to offer uh, a certain cash uh, one-off payments to get over the, the hump of, of, of locking in a very substantial pay rise and bring forward the pay round the, uh, next year. To I don't think they can wait probably till the back end of the spring and certainly take as long as it as they have this year. They are playing a game. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows they're playing a game. And there is a middle ground. And I think that, that the union case is not gone as well as they might have hoped over the winter period. I think some of the effect of the strikes is starting to bite on the unions themselves, let alone the workers. Eamon, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, there there is a lot of talk of inflation. That kind of one-off pay packet could be a good way of, of, of making everyone happy. And there is also talk, as you said, about bringing that pay review forward. You know, right now, I think, you know, talks need to start happening, and I think negotiations need to start happening again. And maybe from Rishi Sunak's statement, you know, that's going to happen now on the NHS side with pay. It seems like he, he thinks that these key workers should be rewarded. So what does that look like? Maybe it is going to be some kind of one-off bonus, and maybe that will bring the nurses, the ambulance drivers back to the table. So... In that sense, you feel like the government still has control to rectify this thing? Yeah, I think, you know, they they definitely do. I mean, especially on the the health side, they've said that, you know, if they start discussing pay, these strikes will be called off. And they Mm. they keep saying that, they keep reiterating that. The government is sticking to their guns. But if they really want to just sit down and have a chat, even about some other way of remunerating these workers, not necessarily a pay rise, maybe a bonus, maybe, you know, a one-off payment, that could be a way of just calling it all off and and, and just removing a bit of pressure from the government. Because, you know, we also have, obviously, the rail strikes. We have, you know, postal strikes. We're going to have teachers voting to strike next week. So if they can maybe get one sector, you know, off the strikes that could make things a bit easier for them. Yeah, I think probably, do you not think it's the rail workers, which is the one which I think the government needs to win because mm. they're perhaps of the least compelling case. Uh, as we know, the average train driver gets paid handsomely. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think that the much the much bigger problem is, and I concur with you, is, is the NHS that has to be done. Um, yeah. and it's probably far more important as well. I think, yeah, on the rail workers, it's true that, you know, that the public support does seem to be, you know, dropping and dropping slightly. You know, there's still good support, but, you know, people are getting a bit, a little bit tired of this for now. Yeah, but um, wouldn't that change then, like, all of a sudden, if the nurses strike and then you go to the hospital and you can't get any service? Like, wouldn't then the, the anxiety just shift? I don't know. Nurses, you know, it seems that, you know, although people are, are distressed about the fact that they might have issues accessing health in this country when it comes to waiting for ambulances or, you know, not being able to have a nurse, you know, there still is, I think maybe it's because of COVID or because of just the nurses that we remember in our lifetimes, people are still quite sympathetic to that cause. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right that people are also distressed, but also sympathetic. 
it's a it's a wonderful world and i think uh, unfortunately we're going to get a, a, a even more wonderful world not in the question if we get you to adopt a striking so oh, yeah, and yeah. that's it that, that's an issue which we had a few years ago under jeremy hunt who was now the chancellor yeah, so exactly. knows more about that one yeah, uh, yeah well I, <laughs> I had no idea how the health system worked there in terms of private versus public doctors it's it sounds like a disaster um not that our health system is that great <laughs> let me be honest um our insurance system is crazy over here, too. All right, Eamon, thanks a lot. I know you got to run. Eamon Farhat uh, joining us, Bloomberg uh, Strikes reporter. Okay, so that's the UK. Now let's turn the focus on what's happening with inflation over in Europe. So Germany yesterday, inflation slowed. France today echoed that statement with inflation slowing as well, which just opens the debate. A, can the ECB downshift? And B, is inflation going to slow a little ra- more rapidly than we think? Um, Guy and I caught up with Paul Donovan of UBS earlier, and we talked through the issues. We've got a very unusual pattern of inflation at the moment. Inflation is being driven by profit margin expansion. But the point about that is that profit margin expansion is a whole lot less sticky than wage-driven inflation. And so the econometric models, which all use wages as their basis for inflation, are predicting a higher inflation rate than we're probably going to be getting. So inflation coming lower. Marcus, what do you think about that? You agree? I think it's fascinating. Uh, I, I think I do agree. It's, it's been the basis of, of a, a lot of the reasons why I've been thinking inflation will will come down quicker than perhaps a lot of other people yeah. have done. At the same point, you know, clearly, just look at the price of, of of crude, and it tells you everything you need to know. Is that every time, and everyone thinks crude's going to go up to the moon, and it keeps on coming back down here. That is sending us a very loud sure. message, as is Chinese inflation. However, I think what Paul's uh, touched on there is 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 even more interesting is that throughout this whole crisis of of the last year, two years or so, we've had corporate price gouging. And that is going to come back and haunt some of these corporates, and deservedly so, because I think we've had a far worse situation than we should have had. And I think governments generally have been far too lax on letting uh, certain prices go out of control unfairly. Meaning that the government is going to crack down on price jacking, and then that's going to also wind up bringing down inflation? Well, they should have done, and that will come back to haunt various corporate. I don't think they're going to get around it in time. The point is, yeah. the market itself is going to do their job for them. And I unfortunately, I think governments across the globe have failed as well. Um, okay. The other school of thought is that inflation is going to come down, and then it's going to rebound. That central banks are going to say, "Okay, we're good. We ah. declare victory," and then it's going to rebound. I know you're sighing, but I want to bring in Yana Rundow. Uh, she covers everything ECB uh, for Bloomberg. Um, Yana, okay, take the other side, please, for me. Um, sure. So overall, um, there there is an argument to be made that um, headline inflation slowing because of, um, you know, a retreat in energy costs uh, at the wholesale level um, because of government measures uh, damping uh, or, or putting caps on prices at, at the retail level. Uh, headline inflation is coming down. And you could argue, and, and in fact, that's a point that policymakers are making, is that uh, that will uh, indirectly or directly um, boost core inflation because uh, people are not uh, are not uh, feeling the the pinch so much. They have money in their pocket, um, and they are um, you know demand is is staying up. So what we what we will see is uh, core inflation being uh, relatively sticky, um, beca- being higher than otherwise, and that is a concern for central bankers <laughs> as always but yeah i mean i just what i can't quite understand is you know there is huge amounts of supply coming down the pipe in in europe there are a lot more borrowing just the eu itself germany is hugely upping its its, its debt load uh, let alone the parental problem of italy 
how does the ECB square this away with clearly a turn? Um, correct me if I'm wrong. This looks like the turn. We've seen that in, in the US. We've seen a substantive improvement in, 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 uh, uh, in inflation across you know, France, Germany, et cetera. It's probably too early to get overly confident. It does look like the turns uh, may well be with us. To keep on hiking rates by 50 basis points repeatedly and starting QT and collapsing the Teltro system and therefore you know wiping the balance sheet down by you know 25% in one fell swoop. So you know can they really keep on pushing and tightening fiscal conditions, creating you know what's already going to be a recession in most of Europe, I think, into into a, a much more unnecessarily harsh one, and at the same time potentially making it much more expensive thereby for themselves to borrow all the money they need to. How can they square it away? It's definitely complicated, but let me take the point of liquidity. And there, for sure, um, we have seen some 70, uh, uh, 750 billion flowing out of the system uh, by the end of the year. And that has done exactly nothing to financing costs, which was very, very uh, surprising, actually. So in terms of of QT in terms of uh, Teltros, I don't think we need to worry, at least not this year, um, because QT, after all, is not going to remove um, very much uh, of, of maturing bonds. Uh, interest rates are slightly more interesting. And I think the point that we need to make there is that inflation is coming down and inflation may be coming down faster than the ECB thought just a couple of weeks ago but uh, it is still too high for comfort and and uh, ultimately the uh, ECB projections are the guide for policymakers um, those are getting updated again in March and then we might actually see a shift in tone until then I don't expect sh uh, actually expect much to happen can I just do a middle ground here so say you're both right. <laughs> so say both views are correct. Why can't the ECB just, you mentioned downshift, but why can't they just downshift? Like instead of a bunch of 50 bips hikes, why can't they just do 25 for a while, see how it goes and see if inflation does continue to come down? Like, is that a, not a conversation, Yana? It is, uh, or it may be a conversation. The problem there is credibility. Um, for the Almost all of last year, the ECB was running after its forward guidance, um, you know, uh, trying to deliver on something they promised and, and, and trying to deliver when things actually changed and would have warranted different steps. They did away with forward guidance uh, in the summer, saying the situation is too uncertain. We can't do that. We will decide meeting by meeting. And that was a very smart decision. Unfortunately, now they have gone back to offering forward guidance, except they're saying <laughs> it's, it's not the kind of guidance you know, but we're telling you we're doing this. So them backtracking couple of weeks after they um, were very, very clear in saying, we're going to do 50 bips in February and probably another 50 in March. Um, that is th that raises, uh, you know, many, many problems relating to their credibility. And that just shows you um, the fine line that they are walking between offering guidance to the market, trying to take this thing out, trying to make sure they're not catching the market by surprise by offering guidance. But at the same time, um, you know, being faced with a potentially very quickly changing situation um, where where they, you know, would be better off being quick on their sh on, on their f on their feet. Um, so so that's ultimately the challenge they have uh, between or that, that they need to navigate. It's going to be very difficult for at least another couple of months. 
I, I think they did catch the market very much by surprise on December 15th because uh, no one expected them to be quite so hawkish uh, and and keep on repeating it. Um, you know, I hear you on, on the forward guidance. And I also hear you, I think you're making a very good point, actually, um, that, you know, bark, bark, bark on Teltros and QE, but so far we haven't really seen an impact. But we did see the move December 15th on the, on the rate outlook. And that's something which I think, again, you're spot on. Come till March, we may get a, a, a perhaps a down a downshift, but probably only if the, both the, the Fed and the Bank of England have already made a move on that. And I suppose Lagarde, who nearly nearly lost this vote, but she it was something like over a third of the, of the governing council um, were, were were clamoring for more than fifty basis points, and it clearly she had a compromise by bringing QT forward. So they've got a you know almost impossible task. I just I wonder if inflation is is. The, the the worry about it, the core inflation is what's keeping mm-hmm. particularly Nigel and and uh, other members of the Bundesbank and you know at, at such at a throat yeah. demanding. Um, I, I, th- yeah, I, I think that's very much the point. Um, but Alex, yes, you no, no, go ahead. We have a uh, twenty seconds though, so I, I don't want to have to cut you off. But we will get you back to discuss for sure, Yana Rondo. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I do wonder as we look back on twenty twenty three. Are economists going to be the big losers again? I don't know. Uh, Hey, Marcus, I appreciate you. Um, I'm going to let you go because we're going to talk about U.S. politics and Salesforce next. So I'm going to spare your soul and you may go eat your dinner, drink your wine. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Coming up, we're going to talk about Salesforce, cutting about 10% of its workforce. We're also going to talk about overall uh, tech in the slide there as well. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Let's get a quick update on where U.S. markets are trading because it's been kind of a weird day. So the S&P is now up by a whopping 1.13 percentage points. We're looking at a gain of about 43 points. Why? Not really sure. Um, so we had an earlier gain in the futures market. Then at 10 o'clock, we had a nice data drop. You had the JOLTS number coming in pretty hot at about 10.4 million job openings. You also had the ISM manufacturing data coming in a little heavy. Prices, though, rolling over, but demand a little weaker, but employment holding up. Initially, you saw stocks actually erase those gains. They sold off a little bit. It looked like we were kind of headed for a yucky session. And then all of a sudden, seeing a nice rebound. And now the S&P is right around the highs of the session. What's not near the highs of the session, though, uh, is oil. Oil also still coming off. Uh, down by about $3.73 for WTI. If we break 70, what happens with that six handle for US oil producers? That's kind of what I want to know. Um, okay, so that's a snapshot here. Uh, also, you have Neil Kashkari talking about 5.4% uh, interest rates and staying there for a while, and the markets didn't even blink. So that's a snapshot here in the U.S. Let's get some more headlines with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is pledging to reduce the national debt and cut inflation as he sets out his priorities for the coming year against a backdrop of mounting strikes, a creaking National Health Service, and dire poll ratings for his ruling Conservative Party. Food inflation in UK shops jumped to a record last month with retailers warning of another year of elevated prices. The British Retail Consortium says food inflation accelerated to 13.3% in December from 12.4% the previous month, reaching an all-time high for the index, which started in 2005. UK mortgage approvals fell to the lowest level since the start of the pandemic after a jump in borrowing costs choked off demand for property purchases. The Bank of England said about 46,000 new loans for house purchases were approved in November, down from about 59,000
than the month before, and the least since June of 2020 when the country was in lockdown. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So the other news of the day that came out in the U.S. is Salesforce is cutting about 10% of its workforce. They're going to also reduce their real estate holdings. Um, The software company said it just hired too many people during the pandemic. Um, They do cloud services, so obviously that was huge in the middle of the pandemic. And they just need to adjust to a more cautious economy. So I wanted to dig in a little bit more on that. So we're joined now by Brody Ford, a Bloomberg Enterprise tech reporter. Brody, what was your biggest takeaway from what Salesforce did today? So anybody who's been watching tech shouldn't be entirely surprised we're seeing a big layoff, but this was larger than lots of people expected. Salesforce is interesting because a company like Meta, a company like Google, they're a little more narrowly tailored to uh, the advertising segment, but a company like Salesforce, they sell to everybody, right? Most of the Fortune 100 is their customers, probably all of it. So we can see that companies are scared to buy things, and Salesforce Mm -hmm. is trying to deal with that. And so they're in a weird spot of dealing with the slowest growth ever, while investors in the current macro want to see profits. So they're between a rock and a hard place, and so they did this. Isn't Salesforce also like a serial acquirer? Didn't they just (laughs) buy up like every company out there so they were super bloated, or did I make that up? I want to say they spent about $50 on acquisitions in the last couple years. Okay, Um, in perspective-wise, is that a lot? That is a ton. Okay, sounds yeah. a lot. I'm just checking. It's, I mean, they, you know, a lot of us know that they bought Slack for 27 billion, which people thought was expensive then. People now think was really expensive. Mm-hmm. So, and they had all those employees from those acquisitions. I mean, they grew their headcount 30,000 in the pandemic. So, um, today's layoff essentially puts them back to early 2022 staff levels. Early 2020. 2022. Oh, early twenty. Oh, just for the last year. Correct. Correct. So it's it's okay. So there's gonna is there gonna be more to go on that then? You know, it's most people don't think so at this current point. Obviously, if things continue to worsen, they might have to look at that. But currently, this is a big layoff. People didn't Mm -hmm. expect it quite this large. So. Um, obviously, it'd be very bad for morale if they had another one coming. No, fair enough. Um, are they so the macro signal? It's it's a demand issue. It's not like they're losing market share to competitors like Microsoft or something. The interpretation is that it's more of a broad industry issue that corporations are scared of the macro. They don't want to spend money on software. It's not that Salesforce in particular is doing badly. Um, a Salesforce specific issue is the fact that. They have not been the most profitable company in the whole world. They are very, they're profitable, mm. but their margins are much lower than many investors want to see. So they're getting pushed on that right now at the same time that demand is slowing down. So that's a very dangerous cocktail. Do you, this may be an unfair macro question, but do you think that if rates weren't rising, the profitability question wouldn't be such a problem oh, for them? Oh, absolutely. I okay. mean, yeah, because rates rising, everybody wants to see tech companies making better money. Um, obviously, a year and a half ago, people weren't so worried about profits. They wanted headline growth. And, uh, I mean, their, their free cash flow is still really high. Is it just yeah. not high enough? It's high, especially when you compare it to companies that are straight up unprofitable. Mm. But you have activist investors saying, look at their peers. I mean, software is a very profitable industry. And Salesforce is mm. famous for throwing these giant festivals, for... Um, you know, spending a lot discretionary. So a lot of investors see their profit not as high as it could be. I see. I see. And and what's their goal then to grow their margin or grow their profit over the next five years? Yeah. I mean, currently what they really talk about a lot is 
adjusting to the new normal, which is kind of figuring out where the demand is, which industries are growing. They talked about right now that their growth industries aren't finance or tech. They're retail, manufacturing, auto, energy, these kind of once boring industries that are now you know, being pretty good growth drivers. So, to that exact point, um, Morgan Stanley Chief U.S. Equity Strategist Mike Wilson uh, talked earlier on Bloomberg, and he said he's looking at a nasty earnings recession, mm-hmm. um, and he talked about uh, cost-cutting companies and what it winds up meaning for tech. Here's part of what he had to say. The thing that concerns me about tech companies is that they're not good cost-cutters traditionally, right? They're, they're growth companies. They tend to want to invest into these downturns. They, t- they want to invest you know, aggressively through all periods of time. And they're just not good at cost cutting. And so they're going to be late on that. They're probably not going to do enough. And so it'll take longer than you think. And so the margin degradation could be more severe in those areas. So does that mean that we're looking at a world where tech has more to fall as the earnings part kind of comes into play after the price slash multiple part was a story of last year? It has become very fashionable in tech to say that cost cutting is a virtuous thing. In the last couple of months, I see so many executives, thought leader types talking about how tech has a lot more fluff that they can cut off. And so I would not be shocked if in the coming months we see companies that have already done layoffs, already done cost reductions, continue to do so. Is there a good actor in your space that many talk about? Um, good actor in terms of Managing their costs, mm. uh, dealing with profitability, not over hiring. He really has like he's laughing. He's laughing now. And he's he's giving me a look of like, what? You know, truthfully, not really. I mean a lot of um, most companies I cover are very profitable, but I think investors are hungry for profit right now. I mean mm-hmm. every sell side report I read is them saying, Hey, these margins could be better. So it's about really getting those margins up and maximizing that potential. They just emphasize top line growth for mm-hmm. so long that I think it's been a real sea change since in the last couple of months of the vibe really is different, that people really want to see the profits over the top line. Yeah, it's funny. It's like, I know you don't cover Tesla, but just as a note, you know, Tesla's growth rate for demand is still 40%. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm sure that there are definitely retail companies that would kill for 40%, but that's not as good as 50 so therefore, um, some may not like it as much. Uh, it was really good to talk to you. Thank you for coming in, uh, Brody Ford, Bloomberg Enterprise Tech Reporter. Thank you very much. All right, now we're going to turn our focus to Washington, D.C. It is the second day of Kevin McCarthy trying to get that gavel, that speaker's seat. Um, they were going to adjourn. But it looks like a second vote is currently underway now. McCarthy has about 40 votes. We're going to go to D.C. and break it down. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. The fourth round of voting is underway for House potential House Speaker Kevin McCarthy doesn't look like he's on track to win. It looks like he's on track now to lose a fourth vote. We have not seen this in 100 years. Let's get more update here with Bloomberg Deputy White House Editor Mike Dorning. Hey, Mike, what's the count? Uh, right now, the count is um, that there are eight people, eight Republicans voting against him. He can only afford to lose four Republicans. So he's basically already lost, although the vote is ongoing. We had heard earlier that they were going to adjourn and come back tomorrow. Why didn't they do that? Well, we knew from uh, people close to McCarthy that that was McCarthy's plan, but the Democrats refused to go along with it, and they said they would all vote to stay in session, and he couldn't count on his opponents Mm. going along with the adjournment. I think they wanted to punch him in the nose one or two more times. 
Yeah. Well, okay, fair enough. Um, one or two more times. Is there anyone who's now seeking the gavel that it's doing well? Uh, well, the vote leader is the Democrat. Um, Hakeem Jeffries gets the most votes each time, but you have to actually have a majority. And the key here is that you need someone with 218 votes. And as long as um, at least more than four Republicans hold out, uh, McCarthy can't be Speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, Yesterday, we saw the totals. It was 19 against 19 Republicans against for the first two votes, and then that grew to 20 in the final vote. This time, you've had former President Trump weigh in this morning with an emphatic endorsement of McCarthy. We'll see if that makes any difference. Um, clearly, it's not making enough difference mm-hmm. at any rate. Yeah, um, we'll see if he gets any any of those 20 back. Um, There's also a speaking to somebody from Strategus earlier, and, and the conversation was, well, one possibility is they just keep calling vote after <clears throat> votes. Democrat members get tired. They want to go home. They stop showing up, and it lowers the threshold to get a minority, uh, excuse me, majority vote. Uh, is that a real thread? That's not real that they would get tired and go home. Um, so they'd like dig well, in their heels and be like, no, 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 we're in here. The the Democrats aren't going to get tired and go home. It's possible that McCarthy could make some sort of deal with them that would um, that where they would um, voluntarily suddenly tire and go home. Um, but mm. uh, that would only be if there was some sort of deal with a large number of Democrats. So to that point. What could he possibly offer the Democrats, or what could he possibly offer those 20 people? Well, the 20 people have made demands for all sorts of plum committee assignments. And it keeps changing, doesn't it? Uh, that's what the McCarthy people, the some sources close to McCarthy, indicate, that um, there has been a squishiness and changing as they, um, as they meet some demands, the demands grow. I think the bottom line is most of these people really don't want uh, McCarthy to be speaker. And I just happened to be catching up on the phone with Nancy Pelosi's former chief of staff a few minutes ago. And he was telling me, you know, when you're one of these 19 people that have opposed the speaker, Mm. you probably it's hard to go back. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see how that works. Also, good name drop. That's 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 (laughs) good good stuff. Um, Oh, by the way. uh, okay, so let's pretend like this vote fails as it looks like it's going to. It looks like nine have not voted for McCarthy. He's at six. I'm just looking at the screens here. Um, What happens now? This is unprecedented. Well, uh, before the Civil War, which is a long time ago in American history, there were cases where this went on as long as I think, and I could be wrong, something like 93 votes to get a speaker. That was a really divided country where people were about to, like, have the bloodiest war in American history. Um, That said, you know, there are also political conventions where things go lots of ballots. You know, at a certain point, it's possible that someone like Steve Scalise or Elise Stefanik or someone could step in as a uh, as a compromise candidate. That's a really tough thing to do, and your mm-hmm. timing has to be just right, not too soon or too late. Yeah, Goldilocks, basically. Um, all right, hey, Mike, really appreciate it. Uh, Mike Dorning, he's Bloomberg Deputy White House Editor. We'll let you get back on the phone with Nancy Pelosi's former White House, former Chief of Staff. No, no big. All right, coming up, we'll talk eco. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Let's get to the data that we've been talking about uh, for the last hour in the U.S. You had ISM manufacturing for December coming at 48.4, lower than estimated prices paid falling to below that 40 mark. IS unemployment, though, up to 51.4. New orders rolling over to 45.2. And then we got the jolts number, a whopping 10.4 million job openings. Let's get the deets with Mike McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Can we start with jolts for a second? What's like a true read here? Are there really 10.4 million job openings right now? Analysts don't think so. The Fed doesn't think so, but they're not sure what the actual number is. They do think it's a very large number. But part of the problem is a lot of times companies sign contracts to advertise jobs for three months. If they fill a job in the first month, they're not going to call up the job company, the help wanted company and say, cancel our thing. They'll just let it run out and ignore any resumes that come in. So this may be a lagging indicator. But the fact that uh, it doesn't change very much month to month to month to month uh, gives you uh, some indication that there is a there are a lot of open jobs out there. Are there. I know this is a really dumb question. Are there literally enough humans in the U.S. <laughs> that need jobs to fill those positions? Uh, it's a it's, it's more a question, Alex, of whether they want jobs. Uh-huh. We know okay. that the uh, labor force participation rate has dropped. Uh, for a while, it was young people, but uh, the prime age workers have pretty much come back to normal. What we're seeing is a lot of people who retired. Uh, during the pandemic who have decided not to come back to work or went on disability and have decided not to come back to work. And at this point, uh, we haven't seen anything that tempts them to come back. In the late 90s, we had unemployment around 3.5%. Mm-hmm. That pushed wages up, and that pulled people in off the sideline. But that hasn't been happening lately. So uh, it, it looks like we're going to have a shortage on a more permanent basis. So let's go to the other piece of data here, um, and that's the ISM number. Don't hate me for saying this, but is this a Goldilocks number? Everything's slowing except for employment. Uh, you could say that. Uh, I listened to uh, your interview with Timothy Fiore from the uh, ISM uh, group uh, at 10 o'clock when it was released in the United States, and I think he was making the case that maybe December was an unusual month. Mm-hmm. But uh, and we might see some rebound. Uh, remember, the ISM numbers measure a month to month change on a sentiment basis. So uh, what you're seeing for a December ISM or a January ISM or something like that would be how is this compared to the previous month? So it's down some to the, compared to the previous month. And so at this point, yes, manufacturing is down a little bit and the new orders index is down. But neither one is suggesting recessionary levels at this point. And as you point out, uh, employment went up. Um, We'll see on Friday whether manufacturing employment continues to rise. But the number that caught everybody's attention, of course, is prices paid because at 39.4, that's the lowest since the pandemic began. And Mm -hmm. it's one of the lowest numbers in the ISM history. So, therefore, uh, the idea that we're seeing uh, the supply chain problems that pushed up uh, prices ease uh, gives it gives it a lot more weight. So how do we understand the whole inventory thing? So new order growth has slowed. Okay. 
But businesses have an enormous amount of backlog that they're trying to weed through. And I'm and then at some point they're gonna have to order stuff again because they need to actually like have the things that you may want to buy. Um, how does that cycle play out this go? Well, it is going to be different, I think. In a normal recessionary time, uh, you have an inventory buildup because companies overproduce and they have to cut back because demand falls. Demand hasn't really fallen so much as inventories weren't available. And it's not that companies weren't producing. It's that they couldn't get things into the country, particularly uh, imported goods and even a lot of things like uh, cars, uh, which come from Canada and Mexico in, in large part as well. And we had the chip shortages. So companies couldn't overproduce. So they don't have as much to cut back on, which may be why you see the inventories that we have now that stuff's finally landed, but you don't see it uh, reflected in a huge drop in production. Right. So how does that then affect the data and how do we sort of what kind of distortion is that going to give us from the underlying economy? Well, it's given us distortions in GDP data, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw uh, GDP weaker than anticipated because uh, we saw big inventory buildups and uh, big, big swings in inventories and trade. Now those are starting to work their way out of the data. So we should get a little bit cleaner read. Mm -hmm. And so far it looks like fourth quarter GDP is coming in relatively strong. We've only got two months worth of data for it. But it, it looks like we're back to wor worrying more about consumer spending and business investment than inventories. Um, okay, let's go to the other piece of news that I feel like the market totally ignored. Mio Kashkari saying that we're looking at 5.4% terminal rate from the Fed that they're going to hang out there for a while. But he doesn't he doesn't actually know what the terminal rate is, but he wants to get to 5.4 and then hang out for a while. Um, surprising, different. What did that mean to you, Michael? Uh, I don't think it means all that much. Uh, he's always, well, not always, but since <laughs> since this cycle began, been one of the more hawkish members. His dot's been among the highest. So it's not a surprise that he's thinking that. The Fed isn't so much divided over strategy as it is over tactics. In other words, how high does the terminal rate have to go? And you got to remember, they're making their forecasts at every other meeting, and it's basically, here's what I think as of today. A lot of data can come in and, and change people's minds. Uh, but uh, Neil is going to be a voter uh, this year, and so his view that you go up a little higher will carry a little more weight than it normally does. But right. I think all of the Fed is making it clear they don't know what's, what the terminal rate is yet. So his is more of an opinion than a an actual destination for the time being. So you wouldn't say that the market ignored him then, necessarily? No, I don't think so. But I think they do look to others. Um, they're looking to Waller and Bullard. They're looking, obviously, to Brainerd. And mm -hmm. uh, they look to Jay Powell to give them a, a real steer on what they think is going to happen. Uh, thank you, Michael McKee. I appreciate it. Minutes coming out tomorrow. We'll get the read from Mike as well uh, into that. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. That kind of wraps it up for this Wednesday. It's already Wednesday. That's so exciting. You made it through. Have a great evening. We will see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg.